My name is David Hurtado. I'm the lead pastor. So glad you're here. And don't run off. I'll be on the patio to hang out with you guys. I want to ask you a question. Have you ever been, felt like you've been on an unexpected journey? Uh, in life, we go on very many different journeys in life, and sometimes they're expected and sometimes they're not expected. I expected life to go this way, but I ended up going this way. I expected life to do, I had these certain expectations of life. This was what life was going to hand me, but I got this other list over here. Sometimes I'm proud of the second list, and sometimes I'm not. Sometimes they're difficult, sometimes it's great. But in life, sometimes you end up on an unexpected journey. Uh, maybe you can relate to that. I remember being a little chubby Hispanic kid. I'd go up to the little ladies, <laughs> and I'd say, hey, that's a beautiful bracelet. Can I see it? And they'd go, oh, sure. And they'd give it to me, and I'd go to the toilet, and I'd flush it because I liked seeing it spin. It was like, kind of cool. And so I would do that over and over and over again. So my mom would say, don't give him anything. Don't give him rings. Don't give him earrings. Don't give him anything. He flushes it down the toilet, right? That didn't stop until the nun at my Roman Catholic preschool took one of my favorite figurines and flushed it down the toilet. I was not expecting her to do that, and I learned that you shouldn't slush people's stuff down the toilet. That's how I stopped doing that. A little older, my little mischievous self, my mom used to wake up and open the newspaper and compare me to Dennis the Menace. <laughs> I'm a little older, about 10 years old. The, the, the mailman would come. You know when they had those little Jeep vans, and they had that door that you keep it open so you can get out easier or whatever? All the kids in my, my community, we would, we would take our positions. We knew what time we would come. We'd take our positions, hide behind fences, and we'd shoot them with rubber bands as he came by. We'd just keep on shooting him. It was like a daily activity, you know? And uh, I, I wasn't expecting the day when he came back and started shooting us with fat rubber bands, the double-wide fat ones. You know, he started shooting us. Just wasn't expecting that to happen. I, I remember the day in my life where the pretty girl said yes. The pretty girl said, I like you. The pretty, the ugly girls don't say I like you. And this one, the pretty one says she's going to marry me. And 16 years later, I would say it was a little bit of an unexpected journey that the pretty one would actually like me when none of the ugly ones had liked me previously. Um, I'll say that again. Even the ugly ones didn't like me. And then the pretty one was awesome. That's what godliness will do to you, fellas. If you're ugly, just understand, godliness can get you the pretty girl. All right. <laughs> Moving on. I remember when we found out when we were pregnant for the first time that, um, that uh, you know, seven months in, the amniotic fluid was not there. It disappeared, and the baby was coming 24 to 48 hours, and Aju would live the first month of her life, 10 weeks in the NICU. It was an unexpected journey. I remember a year later when we got pregnant again because we were told that was an anomaly, and then we found out with Donovan, no, it's not an anomaly. That's Meredith's um, uh, anatomy, and every time that the baby will not go to term. And so we had to do this gnarly shot for, for 20 weeks, and it was horrible to keep the baby in. And he still came five weeks early, but that's considered normal. And then I remember saying, well, we probably shouldn't do this anymore, and then we decided to go into foster and adoption. Unexpected journey. Good and bad on that one. I remember news when my mom came back. My mom had later stage stomach cancer, and she was given two years to live. A little bit of an unexpected journey. We've all been in journeys in life where we have expectations of life, and they don't exactly happen exactly the way we want it to. Sometimes that's wonderful. I have two little children that I love and thank God, and they're blessings from God that come into our house. And sometimes it's difficult because they don't have a grandma, and I wish they did. Uh, all those things come back. We've all seen it. Sometimes those unexpected journeys are even distressing. They're distressing journeys. And today, we're going to look at Jesus and how he, re he reacts to a distressing, unexpected journey. And we're going to see what can we learn from him and how he handled it. And of course, we're going to be doing that through the eyes of Mark because we're in the book of Mark, right? Uh, going word by word, verse by verse. In fact, congratulations. We're about to finish chapter four today. 
If you've been here for months, you've seen, you've been on a good ride with us. And so, uh, as you turn to the book of Mark right now, we have a bound Bible and you open up and you can, you can look at the words and, and, and highlight and write in the margins or, or you open up your phone and take highlights or whatever, uh, um, taking notes together. Let's try to learn from this thing. We're going to be asking some questions. What would Jesus, how would be his, what would be his reaction? What would be his first reaction? And how will he finally respond coming upon a distressing journey? What was his gut instinct on the matter? And what would he end up doing? Where did he find solace? And where did he find strength? We're going to look at that today in the book of Mark. And so the overarching question on the screen today will be, how does Jesus react in times of distress? How does Jesus react in times of distress? When, when the world becomes overwhelming and we're so so quick to, to worry and, and, and all those things come over and the terror and cowardness, all this comes over. How did Jesus react in a similar situation? The first thing we're going to see is he rests in God's sovereignty. He rested in God's sovereignty. There's the idea that in some things in life I'm in complete control. It's in my hands and God has given me control of that, the environment of whatever that is, whether it's work or family. And there's some times where the things are so clearly outside of my control. I'm no longer in control. And when I'm not in control, God is in control because he has the umbrella of sovereignty. He is in control of all things. He is alpha, omega. He is first and last. He is everywhere, all-knowing. Nothing escapes his mind. and He's all-powerful. When I'm out of control, someone else is in control, and it's God. And so Jesus said, well, how am I going to react in times of distress? Rest in God's sovereignty. Let's look at it together in chapter 4, verse 35. It says this on the screen for you. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. They were ministering on one side of the Sea of Galilee. We've been seeing that for the first several chapters here. And now they're going to go over to the other side of Galilee, of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, verse 36, leaving the crowd behind, they, t- they, uh, they took him along just as he was in the boat. And there was also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. And Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. And the disciples woke him up and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Let's stop right there. How does Jesus handle times of distress? He so clearly is resting in God's sovereignty. He's taking a nap. I mean, he's sleeping while everybody else is in dire straits. So let's just look at what's going on here. Let's pick it apart and see what we can learn from this. Um, There's a life-threatening storm that comes up. Uh, how did Jesus even get in the, in the boat in the first place? Remember last week, he's in the boat. There's such a fierce crowd, thousands of people. He's scared they're going to push him in the water. He gets in a boat, lets the boat come out a little bit. The natural acoustics lets him speak to thousands upon thousands. He's in that same boat, let's go across. It's time to go. Why is he even going across the other side? Why would you leave 10,000 people? All these people are listening to you, watching you. Why would you leave them? Why would you leave them? It doesn't even, it doesn't even kind of make sense. Why would you go away from that? And Jesus leaves a crowd, and the best we have is that he was tired. How do we know he was tired? Because he took a nap. Because he, he, took a, he slept so, so hard that even a, a storm couldn't wake him up. You remember the time earlier in chapter 4 or chapter 3 where his family comes, and they're worried about him because he doesn't even have time to eat. Remember that? He wasn't even able to eat. He was so busy doing the work of ministry, he didn't have any time to pause. And so the idea is, that, you know, I'm tired. Let's go. Let's go across the other side. There's less people on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and we can go there and rest a little while. I need some reprieve. I'm tired. So much so that when he gets in the boat, he's just out quickly, quickly out 
in the stern of the boat as they're going to the other side. And isn't it refreshing to know that Jesus, he was God very God and yet man very man, and Jesus himself needed rest. In fact, he's going to do this three or four times in the book of Mark. Well, he'll take a withdrawal time. He'll take some time away. I'm going to pace myself here. i got to make sure that I'm right with God, whatever. I need some rest. I need, you know, it's not always just about doing, 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 doing. And how many of us in life need to know that sometimes we need a break from the doing, doing, doing. And right now you're elbowing your husband saying, yeah, you need a break. You know, even Jesus took breaks. On this break, (laughs) he's trying to go away for a break. What happens? A storm breaks out. How many of you guys have ever been on vacation and all of a sudden you get a car wreck? <laughs> and what's supposed to be like your refreshment turned into a big stressful nightmare. That's kind of what's going on right now. Suddenly a violent gust of wind comes up. This would not be uncommon for the Sea of Galilee. In fact, when Matthew writes this same story, he, he talks about this violent shaking of a storm. When he tries to describe it in the book of Matthew, he uses the Greek word seismos, which is where we get the idea of seismic activity or seismology, which is what we use to, to, to uh, collect information on the earth moving in earthquakes, right? We know that in California, right? And that's the word. He, this is a violent storm. Comes out of nowhere. Just Boom. And it wasn't uncommon for the Sea of Galilee because they had these mountaintops and they had these narrow valleys. And so it would be perfect, perfect for a wind tunnel to, 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 to huge gusts of wind. And the cold wind would come from the top of the mountain and come down to the warm water and they would meet. And anybody who knows anything about you know, uh, you know, weather knows that that's the recipe for hurricanes. All right? And so you have this wind coming from mountaintops funneling through these valleys, hitting the warm water, and all of a sudden you can have storms coming out of nowhere. Um, Evidenced by the fact that we know that the fisher, these guys were fishermen, his followers, they would have said, no, we see a storm coming. <laughs> Let's not go right now. We can tell when that, that's going to be a bad one. These storms can come out of nowhere, and they can come out of nowhere quick. And that's exactly what happened, so much so that the, the waves are so high, they're beating on the boat. It says... A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. The literal idea was that these waves were breaking over or beating upon the boat. They were in danger, grave danger. And we know that because the disciples themselves, who were experts, and this is their realm. This is what they did. They'd go and fish. They know how to go through storms. They've been on the lake before or the sea before when a storm came out of nowhere. This is their career. They know this. And they also know bad storms and not so bad storms. And this was very, very, very obviously a very, very bad storm because they're so panic-stricken. They go to Jesus and they say, don't you care that we're about to die? Now, just think of that. If these guys who've been through many storms before say, it's that bad, it's one of the worst storms that they've ever seen. Don't you care that we're about to die? You know, it's really interesting in this story. We don't see Jesus rebuke them for that question. It's actually... Rather awesome to see that. How many times have we had an insulting question for God that he really should slap us across the face for asking, and yet he doesn't do that? Sometimes when we're in pain, in panic, in stress, God has extra patience for us. We see that in the book of Psalms with David as he's communicating with God. We see that in Job as Job's communicating with God. That you can be real with God, and I'm just not going to, okay, I'm going to bypass that question. So obviously I care if you're going to die. I mean, I'm God. But here he doesn't, he doesn't even, he almost pretends like he doesn't hear the question. And I hear the irony of the whole thing. God's on the boat with you, and yet you're worried about dying. Here God is on the boat with you, 
and yet your biggest concern is, will I die? And what is Jesus doing? He's just taking this nap, an untimely nap. I'm just going to sit down and take a nap. And I mean, he's so peaceful at rest of his nap that even though this boat is probably flipping over, if you ever want to see something funny, go on to uh, YouTube and type in cruise ship in the middle of a hurricane. <laughs> and they'll show you like a cruise ship, like, you know, that's what's happening. It's like jumping. And it's funny because the people, there are people in the cruise ship. Anyway. So, <laughs> I wasn't, anyway, we'll keep on going. So anyway, that's what's going on, and he's sleeping. And the disciples are so afear, they're so, they're so clearly afraid of dying. Like, they, on their mind is dying. In fact, we look in the rest of the synoptic gospel. Matthew says, Lord, we're perishing, Lord, we're perishing. Same story. Luke says, Master, Master, we're perishing. Another disciple, we're perishing. Master, Master, we're dying. We're perishing. And then Mark says, we're, we're, don't you care that we're perishing? There's so clearly death was on their mind. How can you sleep when we're staring at the face of death is the idea. It's so clear that we're going to die here and you're taking a nap. Why are you doing that? And, and Jesus comes with this resolve. Oh, oh, I can take a nap because I'm God. I so clearly got this. I so clearly have this. Understand that when God's in the boat, he's got it. And Jesus can say, I'm going to rest in the sovereignty of God. I'm going to rest in my own sovereignty because I'm God. I'm in control of all things. When you're out of control, I am in control. And so it might sound crazy, but then in the midst of great distress, Jesus is taking a rest. And the fact is that when God is on the boat, he's in full control of all the situations. And so how does Jesus react in times of distress? He rests in God's sovereignty. He rested in God's sovereignty. And secondly... He demonstrated God's sovereignty. He demonstrated it. Now, I'm going to rest in it, but just so you guys can see, I'm going to demonstrate it for you. I'm going to take control of this situation because I'm in control. I am sovereign. I am in charge. And so we're going to see that in verse 39. Come, come down with me and look at this. He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, quiet, be still. If you have another translation, it might say, peace, be still. And then the wind died down. It was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And in verse 41, they were terrified and, he, and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. So how does Jesus react in times of distress? Now he's going to demonstrate the sovereignty. Let me show you how in control I am. He gets up and says, I rebuke you. Waves, I rebuke you, wind. You will be quiet. You will be calm. In fact, the same rebuke or this ordering idea, this is the same word he uses when he's rebuking uh, 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 demonized people or rebuking the demon out of people when he's casting demons out. It's the same terminology. In fact, many commentators believe that, that because of that, the storm is actually demonic, that, that Satan himself is behind the storm. And he says, peace, be still. Some translations say that. Literally, that is, be quiet, be muzzled. They're imperatives, they're commands. I command you, you'll be quiet. I command you, you'll be still. And again, these words, uh, to be muzzled or be quieted, same words he uses when he rebukes the enemy, when he rebukes demons. And so it very well may be that this is a demonic storm, so to speak. 
And it makes sense why would he use these, these imperatives uh, if it was just a benign issue or a amoral. I mean, what is, there's nothing moral about wind. There's nothing moral or immoral about, about waves. And so why would he use such harsh terminology? Probably because there's a demonic realm behind the storm, and he was rebuking it. He's rebuking it. And the result of him is, the result of him doing this is the wind and the waves become calm. I don't know how many of you guys have been fishing out in the ocean before and ever, ever seen storms. You obviously want to steer clear of storms. How long does it take after the storm leaves for the water to get nice and smooth again? It takes a while. But here it says immediately, not only did the winds go away, but the waves, it's like a mirror. Immediately it happens at his word. And then he goes from rebuking the wind and the waves to rebuking his disciples. We see in verse 40. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And the literal idea behind that would be, why are you acting so cowardly, is what it would mean. And cowardly would be the picture of terror. It's how it describes, why are you so terrified? Why are you acting so cowardly in your, in, in your terrifiedness? Do you, yet, do you not yet have faith? Do you still have no faith? How is it that this whole thing came out, we're in this storm and you come to me and you're scared and then, and then this whole thing happens and I, and I, why didn't you know that I would solve this problem for you is the idea. Why couldn't you make the connection that the God inside the boat could calm the storm. I'm the same guy who casted out all those demons. I'm the same guy who healed the leper. You remember that earlier in chapter 2? With a touch. I'm the same guy who healed the paralytic. They brought him down from the roof. You remember that? And they bring him down, and he heals him. The guy gets up and walks. He's the same guy that was in the synagogue that when the guy had the withered hand and put his hand up, it grew back before their eyes. That's the same guy that's in the boat. Why did you not think that he would solve this problem for you? Why did you think he would let everybody die? And then the last parable that we just looked at last week was a parable about how God is sovereign. I'm in control. I control all things. Why didn't you, after seeing all those activities, those miraculous activities, and hearing that story about the sovereignty of God, why wouldn't you assume for yourself that I would take care of this problem? And the answer is probably very similar to our answer because we do this all the time. Why is it that I can, can I, just eight months ago, I had somebody come to my office. I'm a pastor. I'm in such financial dire straits. I remember I got in the description of the whole diary. I, I have no solutions. I can't give you 100 bucks. It's not going to solve your problem. You've got bigger problems than that, you know, type of thing. But I said, look me in the eyes. The God of our scripture says that the, that the birds of the air have a place to sleep in. They eat every day not knowing where it comes from. The lilies of the field are clothed. God promises you that he will take care of your needs, maybe not your greeds, but he will take care of your needs, according to Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to pray together, and we're going to pray together, and we're going to keep on praying until God comes through for you. And I'm going to be committed to pray for you. And one day we're going to come back in this office, and we're going to give him praise and glory for how he comes through for you. And you know what? About a couple weeks ago, he just came through for that guy. And I can stand there in full confidence and say, God will take care of you. His word says he'll take care of you. But when it's my turn to receive the goodness of God and to receive the provision of God, right now I've got a house in San Francisco that just went flooded. I don't know if the insurance company is going to cover it or not. I don't know what we're going to do. Why can I not believe that he takes care of the lilies of the field and the birds of the air when it's for me, but I can tell somebody else in full confidence he'll take care of you? Why? 
For some reason, it's easier for me to believe that he can do it for you, but he can't do it for me. We do it all the time. It's also when we, when we talk about, I mean, I, I, I have so much shame of my sin in my life. I have so much shame of all the things that I've done in my past. And, and I can look at the person and say, you're forgiven in Christ Jesus if you're a Christ follower. He's forgiven you by the virtue of his blood. We just celebrated communion. Why? Because sin after sin after sin, he still forgives on the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The blood covers every sin, past, present, and future. I can look at you and I can declare that with full confidence. And then when it comes to me and the enemy brings thoughts up and memories of, oh, but I don't think God's forgiven that one. Whether it's the, the abuse, the addiction, the abortion, or maybe it's the promiscuity, the perversion, or the parole violation. I can look at you and say, God's got you and it's forgiven. But when I need to apply that to myself, I have a hard time with it. Why is that? Why is that? Same, they dealt with it. We deal with it. I know God can be God for others, but can he be God for me? Now, I'm preaching to myself, guys. Can he be God for me? So clearly he's God for others, but is he God for me? And that's what they're dealing with. We've seen you do it for everyone else. But when it comes to me, that's where I begin to lose, lose faith. I begin to lose faith. They did it. We do it. And it's time to trust him, right? time to trust him. Finally, we come to a bit of irony in the last the short section of the, of the passage, namely that the storm is ended and the disciples are still scared. Look at verse 41. They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. So here's a picture. Uh, they're terrified they're going to die. The waves are, the wind, this is so clear, we're going to capsize, we're taken in water, we're going to die. Jesus goes, peace, be still, boom, everything's like glass, and they're even more terrified. Now they're, why are you still scared? He just ended the storm. Why are you terrified now? Why do you continue being scared? If we're going to understand that, we're going to have to look at some Old Testament passages to give us a better idea of what was going on. He says, why are you still afraid? Not why were you afraid. Why are you afraid? They're so clearly fearful of him at this point. I often go back to this idea that biblical, the biblical sense of fear does encompass the idea of fearfulness and terror we know those very well in our common uh, everyday culture. You know, terrorism, we're terrified, right? And fearfulness of, you know, all those type of things. But also, biblically speaking, the, the biblical idea of fearfulness also encompasses the idea of awe. And I always come back to this one illustration. If you can imagine you're on a cliff, tw 10 to 20 stories high, and I'm getting to the edge of it, and I can see that if I go six more inches, and if I were to go, I would die a certain death. And so I am in awe of this. Oh my gosh, this is amazing. Look how high, look how beautiful it is. At the same time, I'm fearful of the six inches. And that's the idea when we come to God, that we are in awe of him. He, he's amazing. He's higher than us. He's in control. He's alpha, omega, all those things. He, he, he is of a different class. And at the same time, I, being awe, I mean, there's a little fear of that as well. Oh my gosh, he's so big and I'm so small. Now we know we've been reconciled to him through Jesus Christ, but we still should have a healthy awe, fear of God. And this was, not, this was even more so in the Old Testament before we had Christ, and I'll show it. I'll prove it to you. This will be on the screen for you. Uh, so that you, I, I wouldn't turn there right now because it would just take too much time. But uh, first one will be Psalm 65. Let's look at two verses. Verse 5 will be on the screen. It says this. You answer us with awesome deeds of righteousness. Okay, awesome deeds of righteousness. Who is that? Oh, God, our Savior. So God is answering us with awesome deeds of righteousness. What are those deeds? The hope of all the ends of the earth and, and of the farthest seas, who formed the mountains by your power, having armed yourself with strength, who stilled the what? Got to talk to me now. It's gonna be, we're going to be here for a while. Who stilled the roaring of the seas 
and the roaring of the waves. Okay, let's keep on going. Let's go to um, uh, uh, Psalms 89 says this. Oh, Lord, God Almighty, who is like you? Well, no one's like you. He's, he's God Almighty. You are mighty, oh, oh, Lord, and your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule over the what? Surging seas, and when the waves mount up, you what? Still them. Okay, let's go to, let's go to um, Psalm 107 and verse 28. We'll do this again. Then they cried out to who? The Lord, and so they're talking to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. It's almost like he's speaking directly to our passage. Verse 29, and he stilled the storm to a whisper, and the winds and the waves of the sea were hushed, and they were glad when they grew calm, and he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to who? The Lord for his unfailing love and his wondrous deeds for men. I want to let you know something. These guys have these passages in their mind constantly. We take this for granted because we have a bound Bible. If you went into my office, I probably have five or six of them. I have all the words written down. And if you looked at my phone, I have 15 different versions in my phone. But this is before we had the printing press. Before, you got to understand, these guys, they, t- they took this so seriously. They would teach their kids. They would memorize the Pentateuch by the time they're nine years old. By the time they're 12 years old, they got a majority of the Old Testament memorized. They know this like the back of their hand. And they just watch the guy get up and say, peace, be still, and the waves go down, and the wind, in a second, they're fishermen. They know it usually takes hours for it to still, and it's just, and he didn't ask God to do it. He did it. He didn't say, God, would you please do this to prove your, no, I say, peace, be still, and they have all these passages in their brain from the Old Testament going, God is the only one who stops the seas from raging. He's the one who can calm the waters. Oh my gosh, we may very well be in the presence of God. And if we are in the presence of God, look in your Bible. Abraham says, i, I got to take off my shoes. Isaiah, I, I, I can't look at you in the eyes. Ezekiel, Daniel, in the New Testament, Peter, John, Paul. we got to fall on our face. Don't look into his eyes. You'll die if you see the face of God. Are we going to die now because we saw the very face of God? That's what they're thinking. We were scared of the storm that might annihilate us, but now we're talking about God in the ship with us. Are we going to die because we saw him? That's what they are thinking. And the most irony of ironies, instead of fearing the storm, they find themselves fearing God, who has authority over the storm. Who has authority over the storm. And Jesus at some point was like, you should have been able to see this. I've already declared that I was God. I made statements about it. I've done things. How come you haven't made this connection yet? Oh, I'll just show you. I'll demonstrate God's sovereignty for you. And then you'll make the connection. Brings us to our big idea of the day. It says this. Violet, uh, volatile voyages become smooth sailing with Jesus. Volatile voyages become smooth sailing with Jesus. Uh, that's the story we see today. Volatile voyages. Jesus is in the scene. Boom. Becomes smooth sailing like glass. Like glass. There's nothing on this earth or under this earth that poses a great challenge for Jesus. According to the scriptures, he is divine. And divinity isn't overwhelmed by earthly challenges. It just doesn't happen. He is not distressed with any situation like we get distressed about it. He's so clearly sovereign over every situation. Volatile voyages become smooth sailing with Jesus. Let me see if I can illustrate this um, on how this works in everyday life. There was a lady who uh, was getting on an airplane to go see her children and her grandchildren. She doesn't like flying very much, but she'll do it if that means she gets to see her children and her grandchildren. So she goes to the TSA line and goes to the gate, and the gate goes under the plane, sits in the plane, and then they do the whole, 
you know, here's a seatbelt, you know, here's the safety measures and whatnot. And while they're doing all that, she notices a boy across the aisle from her, kind of sitting by himself, doesn't understand why he doesn't have parents, but he's sitting there and he's just got these little figurines. Maybe they're little pro wrestlers or maybe they're superhero guys and they're just, he's just playing with them and ignoring whatever is being said. And she's kind of smitten by him because it kind of reminds her of this is the reasons why she's getting on a plane, which she's terrified 